This is Fuse FM. The university has told those studying abroad in Hong Kong to come home amid violent protests in the city. A spokesperson said the worsening situation meant they were telling students to leave. Support for pro-democracy protesters has been voiced in Manchester before. This is what students said in October. That's happening. The government is non-stop doing, like, suppressing our protests, which is for justice, for human rights, for freedom. We hope the international community can really stand with us. Some Hong Kong universities have been suspended for the remainder of the semester. Hundreds have been left homeless after a fire broke out at student flats in Bolton. The blaze broke out on Friday night with two people treated by paramedics at the scene. SU officers began preparing for strike action by the UCU last week. They said they would clarify their position after a meeting with university leadership. And finally, the Mancunian student newspaper has won an award for best publication at the Student Publication Association's regional awards. Editor Anya Sami said she was incredibly proud of the team and thanked her predecessors. That's all for now. You're in focus. Manchester Student Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Oh, slight crackle there. That's okay. Sorry, that's... that was my bad. No, 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 that's okay. We need to have that slight little hiccup at the start of every show. Like, otherwise, it wouldn't be student radio. If it sounded 100% professional, something would be going wrong. Well, my microphone's falling apart, so... <laughs> we said we wouldn't mention it, Josh. You're ruining the illusion. I just want people to know in case it falls onto my lap. If you hear a loud thud and Josh say ow about halfway through the show... Then I'm suing. <laughs> Um, so, if anyone hasn't heard the show before, this is Fuse in Focus. We are going to be taking a slightly more in-depth look at a few interesting stories that have been in and around the news this week. And we'll be doing about 10 minutes apiece on each of them. Um, we are joined in the studio today, very, very special guest. Joe, would you care to say hello? Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm Joe Maynock, a third-year history student, and I'm here today to talk primarily about... Um, the repatriation of Aboriginal uh, artefacts. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. The other voice that you heard just there, Megan, would you care to introduce yourself? Hello, as usual, news host Megan. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded sounded extremely cocky, but yeah, you know me. And the impending thud, ow and lawsuits that we'll be hearing was from our very own... Hi, I'm Josh. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's just get right on into it. Um, Josh, would you care to introduce us to our first story this week? Absolutely. So this is the, you know, sort of without a doubt, the biggest story of the week. It's on the front page of the Mancunian. It's led a lot of student newspapers across the country. There are a lot of universities doing the very same thing. And it's, of course, the University of Manchester has started to recall its students who are studying abroad in Hong Kong Mm -hmm. due to the worsening condition and the protests there. Have you guys all heard about this? Yes. Yeah. Um, so yes, a spokesperson saying they're advising that students should leave immediately due to the deteriorating situation um, and sort of classes have been suspended in Hong Kong. Some universities are not going to return for the remainder of the semester. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really big issue when students, you know, go abroad and they go and study somewhere, they don't expect this sort of thing to happen. So I think there's a lot of, you know, University of Manchester students and students from across the country who are feeling a bit like... Yeah, a little bit worried about their situation now. Yeah, yeah, and very reasonably so. I mean, it's been so hard to avoid all of the stuff that's been coming out of Hong Kong because these, um, can you even refer to them as protests anymore? It's like a full sort of rebellion almost. It is almost sort yeah. of on a, on a riot level, isn't it, almost? Yeah, 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 but it's obviously it's been happening for just months and months now. Things are getting increasingly hostile. I saw that um, another protester got shot by the Hong Kong police the other day. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's it's crazy stuff. How, how do we all feel about this? I think it really brings it home, and I think, you know, you have to remember that this was a, a British colony just over 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and 
you know these these things are happening you see them on the news you see it on the tv and you think well it's something that's happening quite far away but then when you see it on the front page of the mancunian and you see that there are manchester students who are directly caught up in this it really does sort of sort of bring it home doesn't it and i mean we've had the protests also um relatively recently megan you covered those what sort of things were people saying to you then? yeah um it was really interesting because the protest was on the first of october so that was i think it was like china's national day uh-huh. and also my birthday <laughs> do you know? Do you know what year it was? Do you know what, what year you were born in? What year was I born yes. in? Oh, let's not say this. You'll make me feel all old as no, a student. No, because they have like uh, animal names for the years, don't they? Oh, do they? Oh, I was born year of the rooster, nineteen ninety three. Year of the rooster. I think I'm a year of the rooster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joe, Joe, what year were you born in? Nineteen ninety nine. Do we know? So we should have got this I, up. We should have got a sheet before the. <laughs> believe that could be a, a rabbit, but don't quote a me rabbit, on that one. Okay. I'm not a zodiac uh, boffin. <laughs> Hang on, don't do some magic, le bus magic in the Mancunian. I, I wish I knew what I was. Do you know what yours is, Megan? Oh, I can't remember. But um, yes, back to the story. Back to the, back to the, back to the, back to the incredibly serious story. Um, yeah, so they started a protest. It started outside Oxford Road, and they actually got caught up in a protest, like a counter-protest. So the people that were, uh, I think they say they're Chinese nationalists were protesting against them because they were quite upset that they were protesting on their national day and they said it was quite disgraceful and they didn't I don't think they agree with their protests but also a lot of dialogue was coming saying that they don't really understand why people from Hong Kong are protesting which is also a problem but it was quite an interesting protest because you had literally uh, one side of protest and then a completely different side of protest and it was also on the same day as some of the Labour not the Labour Tory party conference mm-hmm. uh, protests so Manchester was honestly abrupt with political views and it's it's so weird that it's it's spread sort of out and you just sort of into like the classroom and things because th- th- there's quite a lot of sort of um, like Chinese and Hong Kong students on my course yeah and there's been like sort of very kind of clear tensions between them because between the sort of pro hong kong side and then the sort of one nation china side yeah like it, it spreads so far like the implications of this are wider than even just hong kong in of itself as a, as a city and a region yeah like it's affecting anyone who might identify as chinese yeah. joe what are, you, what are your thoughts on this have you sort of been following the hong kong news at all um yes i believe it's hard not to follow in many ways um I believe, from my perspective, with an issue as uh, complex as this, um, uh, I feel somewhat almost disillusioned by, you know, you see these almost apocalyptic images in the streets, Mm. um, tear gas flying, whole whole streets occupied by hundreds of thousands of people. um, And um, kind of, uh, from my perspective, I don't really have an understanding of the the complexity and Mm. the historical implications of such an important issue. So... Um, I don't. I don't feel like an authoritative voice, but I I, I share the solidarity uh, with the people protesting, and I commend it because it's showing uh, the impact that direct action can have uh, in the modern age. Because they, what they're originally protesting for the uh, what was it? The ability for the Chinese government to repatriate Hong Kong citizens. Yeah, that's it was what it the sparked. extradition bill, so that they Edition. could try them uh, according to Chinese law. And, and then it's just sort of spiralled out to become a massive pro-democracy movement, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, they've mm-hmm. seized that moment and they've said that, you know, if there is going to be a chance where we want to enact real change through direct action, this is the opportunity. So uh, solidarity uh, with that and it's great to see direct action um, 
being hammered out in such in such an admirable way yeah. in the modern age. Has anyone uh, seen the um, demonstrator archers? So obviously um, there's been an increasing number of demonstrators that have been shot by the police either mm. with rubber bullets with those weird tear gas grenade things or just, just with actual bullets um, like I think another demonstrator got shot in the chest last week obviously a lot of the demonstrators don't have access to firearms with which to shoot back but there's quite an active archery scene in Hong Kong so wow. some of the protesters have been bringing bows and arrows and like have been just firing arrows at the police and I, I was reading a report the other day that the BBC put out about how within like the past week all of the um, medical staff within Hong Kong's hospitals have had to very very quickly familiarise themselves with how to treat arrow wounds wow. oh my god it's crazy isn't it, it it's is. crazy I mean it is a, a really sort of a, 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 just a huge story and one that has you know enormous implications for you know international politics and everything else bringing it a little bit sort of closer to home I mean and I imagine there'll be broad consensus among us here but do we think that the university has done the right thing here in pulling people out quickly should they have perhaps done it a little bit earlier <sighs> I mean, I think they they they've I think they've made the right decision because ultimately, whatever happens, the university are going to fall back on their insurance. If like they've they've protected themselves, mm-hmm. and I think that as long as the students aren't being impacted in in a negative way, yes, and they're not too caught up in it, then just just let them come home and. We can we can deal with the fact that they've kind of missed a year or whatever. Yeah, because that's another element to it, isn't it? They're going to have missed modules. Yeah. Their credits won't line mm. up. So you know, another question is: Do we think that this might sort of make people think twice about going to study abroad again? Do we think that because these people who went to choose you know to study in Hong Kong, they could never imagine that these sorts of things would happen. So I mean, it would make me think twice about what if I go to study abroad and then something like this happens. I think it's a very exceptional circumstance yeah. because there are, I know with the law anyway, there are people that are in Canada, people that are in America, people that are in like other places of Europe, people that are in Singapore, shout out Lenny and Rafiat, they're in Singapore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're listening. Uh, yeah. And you know, they're not affected. It's, it's a very exceptional case. And I think mm-hmm. that's why it's obviously the front page of the Mancunian mm-hmm. because it is so unique. It seems we're singing the university's praises for once, doesn't it? It seems like they've they've done the right thing. And, I know, which yeah. is very very unlike us. And I think that, if anything, is a, as good a segue into our next story. <laughs> yes, I, there are going to be two stories that sing the university's praise, and I don't think that's ever going to have happened before. No, we're, we're usually really really critical of the uni here <laughs> on the show. So uh, any uni vice chancellors that may have tuned in, like enjoy this while you can. Yes, uh, maybe in the in the last half an hour of the show, you might not be quite so happy with what we've got. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, more on that later, more on that later. So, um, Joe, would you just care to explain a little bit more about what's been going on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on Wednesday, uh, I was fortunate enough to attend this event, uh, which was um, basically involved the Manchester Museum uh, repatriating uh, sacred artefacts to Aborigine Australians. Mm-hmm. Um, and the event was representative of a partnership between an organisation called AATSIS, uh, which is Aust- uh, funded by the Australian government and Manchester Museum. Um, and what this organisation AXIS are doing is trying to use the uh, 250th anniversary of Captain Cook's voyage to the east coast um, of Australia to try and stimulate and rouse awareness um, in the process of returning um, artefacts to their traditional custodians. 
Um, so at the actual event itself, uh, I, I was able to see the repatriation of 13 items to a, a, a language group called the Gora Gora. Um, and the university is repatri repatriating a total of 43 um, items in total. And this is happening over, um, the, uh, over the coming year. Mm -hmm. um, it felt as though uh, I was witnessing history in a way because Manchester Museum was the first... Um, museum or institution in the UK um, to return such artefacts uh, to indigenous Australians and the second in the world um, and it was representative uh, of kind of a new insights into how to deal with um, the hangover of empire and colonialism and the Victorian legacies um, so yeah very very um, interesting experience and I think I learned a lot do we know time. if this is, is so happening cool. anywhere else? Are other universities sort of doing the same thing or is, is Manchester sort of a leading light in that respect? Um, in the UK, I think Manchester Museum can be considered a leading light uh, to the extent that they were praised um, very much so by this organisation, AISIS, uh, for their ability to get the process done fast. So it happened over a six-month period and um, they're praised for quite, having quite an open dialogue. Um, and yeah, in terms of... I mean, this company, ISIS, have identified 100,000 objects uh, throughout the country. Wow. Gosh. Which are in need of repatriation. Did you say 100,000? 100,000, yes. Oh, so I didn't mishear that. 100,000 <laughs> items. But just think of the distance between, like, it, it, to bring 100,000 items from Australia to here. Over well, that's a logistical nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it just, the, the scale of that is, is crazy. But, but these people had travelled back from... Australia to come to the Manchester Museum to collect them. Yes. How did they? How did they? Like, what kind yes. of emotions did you send from them? Because um, from yes. the press email, it was emo quote unquote emotional. Extremely. Was it? Extremely. Um, yes, they they stressed this a lot, um, and it was an element of being able to restore their own culture, their own language, their own mm. traditions. Um, and uh, yeah, they they described it in very poignant and emotional. Um, terms at times and there was even some items that were in inherently secret or sacred oh, wow. um, that the public were not allowed to see the press or even the um, museum um, curators themselves were not allowed to see these so very very religious very spiritual uh, items mm. and, and one of the one of the language uh, groups elders a man called uncle bob mm -hmm. described um his uh, experience of uh, encountering one of these sacred objects for the first time because it's been trapped in this museum for a hundred years and then he, he he described this thing of the spirit like jumping into his body and wow he, uh, wow uh, so so almost stuff that from a western perspective it, uh, is hard to understand uh, mm -hmm. like um elements of like animism and um yeah, yeah, it was very spiritual, I think. Gosh, wow. People in attendance. So Manchester have really kind of set a precedent then by returning these gifts. Do they do they highlight that they were planning to return more? Is it literally just what you saw in the event? Um, the, the gifts, the, so not the, the gifts, the, um, the artefacts, sorry. So what's interesting about the process is uh, Manchester Museum are currently under the process of doing four, 43 repatriations. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. Um, and 13 happened on Wednesday. Okay. Um, and they're very open. They're hoping that this event will spark interest in the rest in the rest of their collection because mm. once these 43 have done, there's actually no more requests from uh, other people for these items. So, I mean, there's a tendency to think that this process would enact like a tidal wave of um, people like demanding yeah. 
not demanding, but asking for their uh, artifacts back. But uh, it's actually been quite a slow process. Uh, mm. But they're hoping that this will serve as like um, a, a, an impetus for for more interest in their collection. Yeah, fantastic. How did the event work? Did you go? Was there lots of other members of the public and press? And- um, so like it you was press. Yeah, yeah, it was it was quite a nice experience. Uh, I got traversed through the back rooms of the Manchester Museum and into this office. Uh, and in there, there was um, a nice spread of afternoon tea. Ooh. <laughs> um, How the other half lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't say no to a nice uh, salmon uh, salmon uh, sandwich. But um, And then, yeah, I was a member from the press primarily, so it was press. Mm-hmm. And then representatives from the language groups and IATSIS and the Manchester Museum. So uh, Guardian, ITV, BBC News were all there, so... Did you get to sort of interview any of the sort of museum bosses or anything like that? Did you get yeah, to- so I interviewed the... Um, Christopher Simpson, who's the head of Aetsis, mm-hmm. uh, Esme Ward, who's the um, university uh, director, um, and then um, the uh, Uncle Bob fellow, uh, <laughs> who I mentioned earlier. Which is a well. fantastic name, by it the is, way. It like. is a fantastic name. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good name. I was very impressed. Um, and do we know when the next repatriations are going to be then? Because you said it was 13 out of 43 so far? Yes. Um, I don't think they've uh, been scheduled, but uh, they said that they were going to happen in the coming year. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. So I think this kind of like, you know, leads us into a slightly bigger issue, doesn't it? Because, of course, it isn't just Manchester Museum that yes, has a yes. lot of artefacts that have not necessarily been gainfully acquired. Like, like I think there's a, there's a lot of museums in and around the UK that have very very similar things i know there's a lot of controversy with um you know the british museum in london yes because more than some it was something ridiculous like 40 percent of the things they have on display are currently like that there are other people trying to get them back like other mm. countries that we've just taken stuff from yeah, yeah the british museum in particular i think comes under quite a large amount of criticism and it's quite stagnant and and, and kind of wants to hold on um to to most of its artifacts it has and in that way perhaps showing a, a resistance against waking up to these new conversations, new insights, mm. these notions of modernity that, that, that Manchester seems to be um, pushing forward um, in a commendable way. Which yeah. is genuinely, like, like for Manchester Museum and for the uni, like, like this is unusually fantastic Go news. Go on, heap that <laughs> praise. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, yes. but sincerely, though, this, this is, um, like, like, not to sugarcoat this in any way whatsoever, this is such a tremendous step in the right direction. Yeah, it's, it's really history in the making. And, and for the museum to have done this, like, should not be shirked or laughed at in any capacity whatsoever like this is sincerely fantastic news because like whilst it may just be you know sort of like a few items that are on display maybe a couple of times a year that people can go and see here you know for people that have so much of their religion and culture tied into these Mm -hmm. items like this is a huge deal like you were saying with the guy sort of feeling as if a spirit had jumped into him and inhabited him yeah definitely uh, they showed a definite interest in contextualizing these things mm-hmm. um, properly because they fa- they found it empowering to be able to tell the proper stories, like what they, were these items used for in particular? Were they items of ceremony, uh, hunting, dance, song, praise? Out of pure sort of curiosity, what what were the actual like specific items in of themselves? Like um, there were some. So there was this one uh, item which was made out of emu feathers. Um, was kind of these two things that you could hold as either, either as decorative to, to go on like as a belt or as behind the head as like a ceremonial dance thing um, and there were lots of um, various uh, bits of pottery and uh, all, all sorts of stuff really um, and then a large amount of them were actually these sacred ones sacred items which um, 
are prohibited uh, wow. for people to see. Yeah, we we are take this is radio, but we are taking off our sort of metaphorical hats to the, <laughs> to the university. Definitely. Thanks so much for coming and telling us about it, Joe. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. You. Thank you. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. So um, I think to move into our uh, sort of third story of the week, mm-hmm. Josh, would you care to uh, ju- just introduce us a little bit to to a certain manifesto that's coming? It out? is manifesto week. We've had a few manifestos. We had the Green Party. We had the Lib Dems. I believe Plaid Cymru was launching theirs this mm-hmm. morning, but. Of course, the largest of all until we get the Conservative Manifesto is the Labour Parties. We've had Jeremy Corbyn in Birmingham yesterday launching what's been described as the most radical Labour Manifesto you know, since the last one. Um, and we- <laughs> <laughs> the most radical Labour manifesto in two years. Exactly. Um, so, yes, you know, he's promising to you know, transform the UK, rational- renationalise rail, mail, water, energy, promising a green revolution, lots of uh, spending pledges. It's 105 pages, so we won't sort of go into, go into all of it now. But my first question for you guys is, there's been a lot of controversy over this term radical. Um, some people are saying that, you know, this is... There's one side of saying it's too radical. There's another side of saying it's not radical enough. And there's people saying the term radical is not the right term to, to describe it. Um, what, do we, <laughs> what do we think? Is this manifesto really radical? Or is it just something that we need in, in this... In this uh, um, 21st century I, economy. I, I mean, I think within a sort of like national perspective, like, like there's certainly a need for us to change something within our society quite radically. Like I know that the Conservatives have been you know, very big in sort of putting forwards this figure of saying, oh, unemployment is at a record low, Mm. which at face value sounds good, but there's more people on the streets than ever before. Food bank use is at an all-time high. People claiming in work benefits is at an all-time high. Uh, Classrooms are bigger than ever. Our hospitals are struggling. We need a radical change. Clearly, that's just necessitated even at the most cursory glance at the country. There are some things in the manifesto that I I think are are very radical, but but I'm a bit personally unsure as to as to if if the radicalness has been pointed in the right direction like i don't know if anyone's seen the the wi-fi coverage or like yeah i've heard about every person in the uk will receive free high-speed broadband which which is fantastic and that would do a lot to sort of i suppose bring like certainly people in more rural parts of the uk like up in sort of like the furthest reaches of scotland um, sort of in line with every, everyone else in the country. But uh, I, I don't know if that's strictly what we need right now. Well, but let, let's sort of try and come on to some, some uh, you know, maybe criticisms or, you know, scepticism a little bit later. But can I get, uh, Megan and Joe, can I get your thoughts on it just really quickly on just the manifesto in general, what you think, you know, if you think it's going to take us in the right direction, what's your initial thoughts in seeing it? Is it really that radical? Um, I'm a big fan of the manifesto, I must say. Um, Jeremy Corbyn uh, the other day described it as a manifesto of hope and uh, that's something that I am inclined to agree with. Uh, this debate about radicalism, um, how I'd weigh on in that is, yeah, I'd, I'd second your point that radical change is definitely <clears throat> required, um, but um, the proposers, I think, the, I think the use of the term uh, radical uh, can be used as to kind of belittle uh, the policies and uh, in a sort of derogatory turn, mm. uh, when in fact it's simply just change that has to happen. Um, and, you know, the t- it's the, the, uh, the word radicals used primarily t- uh, to address the issue of like high taxation, mm. uh, but that's only going to affect the top 5% of the population. So I think um, it's definitely going to reverse some of the... Um, trends of our time of individualism selfishness and i think it's uh representative of a new kind of politics um a politics um that's going to make this society more equal 
And I think you could use the term radical of the state of society now, perhaps um, more succinctly than to describe the Labour manifesto. I think many of these policies uh, are deemed normal in countries that do very successfully. Mm -hmm. Some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, particularly on the issue of university tuition fees. Um, mm -hmm. We will come on to that. We will come on to that. <laughs> I think our, our, our policy of charging nine grand a year would seem radical to many people in, in many countries, especially on the continent. Yeah. Mm. Megan, what are your initial thoughts? I mean, to be honest, I haven't read it. Well, no, no one's, no one's going to read it. It's a 105-page <laughs> document that came out yesterday. Like, not, how dare you? However, what I will say is the fact that, you know, all this talk about a manifesto being radical, well, I mean, he's running up against the conservatives who currently run the country he is going to have to be radical and i think a, a, a thing with manifestos is a lot a, a lot of the time often they will put in policies that they know they may never get around to doing mm. and while they may love to do it it's never actually going to happen it's all about <laughs> the persuasiveness of the manifesto like it's great to have broadband for everyone is it actually going to happen probably not even mm. if they were to get into power but it's that idea of like oh but that's a nice addition to it it's a nice idea yeah. so that's what i'm going to support i do find it very funny you know the conservatives offering change when they've been in government for nine years um, did, did you see um that the conservatives had bought out the domain the labor manifesto.com yes, uh -huh. and i think this is a, 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 a much wider issue about sort of you know nasty campaign tactics and a sort of race it, to it's the an ugly politics it is very ugly and, because and the fact chat fact checker on twitter yes, uh -huh. that was that was an interesting i mean it's it, it, sure it's so. not not to sort of put forward my own personal bias but but all, all i'm saying is in in this election that there's more or less the choice between the two bigger parties You've got the party that has tried twice very, very publicly within the past week to mislead people, or you've got the group that have fully costed, and that's that's something that, again, shouldn't be shirked. The, their manifesto is fully costed. Right, okay, let, let's just... Be, can I just stop you there? Yeah, go on, Josh, go on. So, on. just because I want to throw a point out for everyone to answer, um, in this manifesto we have, you know, 75 billion promised to build 150,000 council homes, 5% uh, pay rise for public sector workers, so introducing a real living wage of at least £10 an hour, um, you know, they're giving EU nationals the right to stay, reinstating bus routes, free broadband for all, three billion plan for adult uh, you know, education and stuff like that. Um, you say it's fully costed. There is a question, isn't there? Like, how are we going to pay for this as a country? And I think we have to offer that bit of balance for our listeners. They deserve that. Taxation. Yeah. And what, what's our view on, on taxation? Um, and on Labour's particular taxation of taxing the top 5%, what do we think? But it's more than taxing the top 5%, isn't it? Because it's taxing not only the top 5%, but increasing... Um, uh, corporation tax mm -hmm, yeah. and taking measures to tackle tax avoidance and tax dodging from big corporations mm. and big business. Yeah. Um, so so I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of elements there Yeah. and it is to be fair and in the interest of balance, those are three very, very, very big issues to tackle and as good as it may be for you to put forward like, oh, if we can achieve this level of taxation, mm. fantastic, we can afford all of this, all of that, but there is a question about, well, how do you tackle corporate tax dodging how do you start to slowly and sort of steadily bring up corporation tax in a sustainable way in a sustainable mm. level and yeah there is a big question mark there to be fair joe do you think they'll pull it off um i think if they were to come to power i'd like to think that they would um but from looking at the 
current polls, um, I'm not sure whether they'll get the majority that they need to pull it off, uh, which is which saddens me to say. Uh, but you know, even though in 2017 we saw that the polls were wrong and that they had this brilliant galvanising campaign, um, it wasn't enough to form a majority. So I fear it'd be a similar story this, mm. this election. Can you see a, a sort of hung parliament again? Or? Um, I believe that's probably the most likely outcome. Mm. And on that note, is it possible that we could round this conversation up <laughs> just because we need to play a track and then we have a really interesting special interview for you guys. James, do you want to introduce We the do, interview? we do. So if, in case anyone hasn't heard, um, people on the planet who are... Uh, how are we building that? Is, is it a student pressure group, should uh, we say? Climate yeah. activists? Yeah. Climate activists. Yes, yes. Um, they have been occupying the John Owens building on campus for two days now, I believe. Yep. Um, to protest the university's investment in fossil fuels, and we will be speaking to them on the phone after this track. Don't go anywhere. Fuse FM. We are going to go into our interview with People and Planet. I just want to check that we can hear you. Can you guys just say hello? Hello. Okay. Hey, brilliant. Can you guys hear us as well? Yeah, we can. Okay, so I'm speaking to Kaylee and Daniel. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Kaylee um, from People and Planet and the Fossil Free Campaign, currently occupying the John Owens building. And hi, I'm Daniel, also from the People and Planet Society, the Fossil Free Campaign, and also in John Owens. Okay, so do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of your campaign so far? You you started to occupy the building on Tuesday. Do you want to yes. talk us through how it's been so far? Um, it has been really good, but we have to acknowledge that this campaign has been going on for eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, the Fossil Free campaign was founded to uh, get uh, the university's investments out of fossil fuels, and we're still here. <laughs> um, but on Tuesday at 10 past nine, we uh, entered the John Owens building and occupied uh, the Finance Committee's boardroom and their corridor outside uh, and we have now been here for uh, four days. Mm -hmm. And have there been any issues I've seen on Twitter that you were blocked from using toilets and weren't able to get food in? What? What? Do you want to speak more on that? Um, so basically, ever since we got here, they haven't been allowing the passage of food to us. So mm -hmm. any staff that tried to give us food, they basically uh, take their names down and report them. Oh, um, wow. So that's not... Not great. Um, we are. We do have access to toilets. Um, so in the corridor, we occupied a space with a toilet specifically so that we could guarantee access. But the thing was that three of our members got separated mm -hmm. when they went to try and pick up some food from outside. So they then were in a separate corridor which didn't have access to a toilet and they were refused to allow to go to that toilet. Wow. And how long were they there for? They were there for 25 hours. Wow. wow. So if, if you don't mind me asking, how did they manage to use the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> um, we made very ingenious use of old pot noodle cups uh, and wow. a cupboard. <laughs> and what's your, what's your view on that? The university is you know, restricting your access to, 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 to the toilets. And, you know, what, what, what do you have to say about that? It's a bad response to what has been a peaceful protest. Mm -hmm. Um you know, considering also that this building is a public building and that we are here during open hours, we don't see why 
told it should be restricted at all. And, and management uses of the building. University management is that where they're 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 based in that building. So some of the university management are based in the building. So like the SLT team, um, senior leadership, the finance, Nancy herself. So all of the all of the kind of big university management people are in this building on the floor above us right now. And have you actually been able to see or interact with them at all, or have they been sort of uh, sort of steering clear of you all? Uh, we did make a breakthrough uh, yesterday after uh, two and a half days of uh, virtually complete silence where they refused to acknowledge the campaign. Um, we think that uh, some of our members being separated and being denied access to toilets was what pushed them over the edge. Uh, we uh, were brought letters from the registrar, Patrick Packett, uh, delivered personally by the Director for Student Experience. Um, and the letters were offering uh, us a meeting if we were to abandon the occupation. And you um, said? Well, initially we were thrilled that we were receiving communication at last from the university, uh, but eventually we decided that we would have to refuse their offer. Um, we have a list of seven demands, and this one barely met the first. I've I've just spoken to um, Adam Hay, who's the community officer at the SU, and he said there was some form of meeting um, yesterday. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the meeting yesterday, from my understanding, was the student union exec meeting with the uh, university management. So one of the things they brought up during that meeting was this ongoing occupation and was the university's investments in fossil fuels. And basically what came from that meeting was that they allowed the protesters who had been split from us to rejoin um, and they issued us a letter offering us a meeting on the condition that we leave the occupation. But that meeting didn't guarantee any kind of commitment to divest or even like acknowledge our other six demands. So, so you, we've decided to stay. Yeah, so you've spoken a little bit about your main demand being that they, they divest. What are the other demands that you have? So We can read them out to you if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, yeah please do. Our first demand was that uh, university open a dialogue with their students who have so far been met with silence, repression and condescension on this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were offered a dialogue, but that dialogue required us to abandon our occupation, which we have refused to do. Mm-hmm. Our second demand, uh, which is what most people know, is that we demand the university divest the £11,975,986 they have within the fossil fuel industry. We demand that the university commit to full divestment and pledge not to reinvest. We demand that the university seek out renewable investments that act in accordance with their social responsibility policy. We demand that the university give regular progress updates on their divestment process and that these be made public in order to ensure transparency. We demand that the university engage with issues surrounding climate justice and decolonization. And finally, we demand that no punishment be enforced on the students who have participated in this occupation. Mm-hmm. So how, how long are you guys prepared to occupy the John Owens building for? We're mostly prepared to occupy until we get our demands met. Um, so obviously a lot of that depends on the coming few days whether we'll be able to but we are prepared to and we're going to do everything we can to ensure that that happens you guys have plans in place to be there you know till at least over the weekend if nothing happens oh yeah definitely definitely. how are you looking in terms of you know food and drink and stuff like that 
so we were able to get water from the toilet because there's a sink. Mm-hmm. So water's fine. Um, food, we do have a supply of food, which should last us over the weekend. Um, after that, we may start running low on supplies. So we might have to find some innovative ways to get food in. But we should we should last the weekend. Yeah. Uh-huh. And can we just ask you, I don't know if you've seen sort of the, the social media response to, to what you're doing, but there are, you know, a few people who, who you know, don't agree with your methods. And they say that if you do, you know, want food and want to use the toilet and, and you do sort of, you know, need these things, they say, why don't you just leave? You can leave at your own accord. What's your, what's your response to that? I mean, it's very true. We could leave at any time. Um, we don't have to do this uh, technically. But the fact is, is that is the whole point. Uh, the university has refused to engage with this campaign over the past eight years. And it has come to the fact that the only way they will engage with us is if we put ourselves in this situation uh, where we cause peaceful disruption. Um, ultimately, is the university's choice if they choose to deny us access to toilet facilities uh, or food. Um, but I think that the university has to commit uh, to divesting from fossil fuels if it is to remain. Uh, The champion of sustainability argues that it is, and that while uh, some people do criticize our methods, um, they are the only methods we have left to us right now. And we, we talked a little bit about the social media reaction, and I saw on Twitter yesterday that another university has supported and standed in solidarity with your campaign. Do you want to talk more about the people that have been supporting you? Yeah, so the Newcastle University is the one that have started an open letter on our behalf and are asking people to sign it. Um, So that's on Twitter if anybody wants to add their name. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, There is also another occupation going on at Warwick University run by the a BDS campaign mm-hmm. um, and we are standing in solidarity with each other. Fantastic. Um, so we, we've sort of seen um, you know this sort of pressure work at other universities. I, I believe that York was the, the latest university to, to commit to divestment. Um, what other things can students do to support you guys? Um, we suggest that you uh, make as much noise as possible basically the best weapon that university has against us is by keeping this quiet. Um, we w- have been referred to as an ongoing incident by the university administration to various staff when they are inquiring what was going on. Um, but if students can email their lecturers, email their heads of uh, school, uh, even email uh, the various members of the university administration, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also keep uh, making lots of noise on social media as well. And I was told by Kaylee that you guys are like being you're kind of connected with the UCU strikes as well. They're supporting you uh, while you support them. How How is that going to work in the coming week? So in the coming week, obviously, the strike action starts on the 25th, so on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, we've had a lot of support from UCU. So they signed our open letter. We have staff members who have been very kind to us in the building who mm-hmm. are from UCU um, and in general we support them we stand in solidarity with them and they stand in solidarity with us 
So we've got a, a mutual relationship with them that's very supportive. And um, just at the risk, sorry, of asking maybe a slightly inane question, um, how are you all passing the time in there? Because presumably, you know, you've, you've got a lot of free time on your hands. Well, lots of us have uh, essays and dissertations to write. So we have actually <laughs> been keeping up with our university work. So studious um, as ever, even despite the occupation. Even despite, yes. But we have also been playing uh, lots of card games. We've been doing some yoga. We even saw some tight <laughs> last night. Uh, so we've been keeping ourselves active as well. Oh, absolute heroes, all of you. So you're in, you're in high spirits then, it's fair to say. We are. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, do we have any more questions? No, can we just ask finally what's your message to any sort of member of the senior leadership team who might be listening? Um, if anyone is listening, um, we would say that we are very disappointed with uh, the fairly draconian response that you have enacted against this occupation. Um, we would welcome a dialogue, but only if uh, it is in the John Owens building and does not require us to and our occupation. Also, there's going to be a rally outside the John Owens building in seven minutes with a Fridays for Future. So the group that usually protests at the Central Library every Friday, the school children, they're going to show up outside the John Owens building and make a lot of noise for us. So to anyone that's listening that wants to support and go and make some noise, as you guys have said, they should kind of join that protest and tag it on social media and, and do kind of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And what are how can we, uh, how can we follow the protest and your occupation? Do you want to just shout out your your Twitter, your Instagram, your handles? Yep. Um, so we're keeping everyone up to date on social media. Our Twitter handle is People UOM, um, and on Facebook we are Fossil Free University of Manchester. Um, and on Instagram, we are People on Planet Europe. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for speaking to us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Wow, you can hear, you can hear everyone there. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, you know, high spirits indeed. Um, before we leave you guys, we do need to give the university of response. It is only fair. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to read this out, you know, very briefly now. Yes. A University of Manchester spokesperson said, We welcome the chance to meet with students as long as it is through the appropriate student union representatives. We have offered to meet on that basis. The university recognises that students have a right to protest peacefully, providing this does not unduly disrupt the conduct of the university's normal business. However, by occupying the corridor and meeting room, they are causing significant disruption. On the issue of divestment, our policy is clear and in the public domain as part of our socially responsible investment policy. We no longer invest in companies with more than 5% of their revenue from thermal coal and oil sands. We sincerely hope the students will accept our offer and we look forward to meeting them in due course. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you everyone who has listened for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed this and you maybe want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, at the Fuse FM News Presenters Group. And if you want to come and join us and chat with us. Yeah, yeah, please do. If there's a topic that you'd like us to cover at all, you know, please feel totally free to shout us out. We're on Instagram as well, at Fuse in Focus. And one more time, thank you so much to Joe for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you, obviously, to Kaylee and Daniel for taking the time out of their occupation Absolutely. to uh, speak with us. Um, this will be up on Spotify. Please follow it if you haven't already. We um, will not be praising the university this much next week. <laughs> no, this is very <laughs> irregular. Very irregular. 
Um, so, thank you all very much again, everyone. I've been James. I've been Megan. I've been Josh. I've been Joe. Good talk, everyone. Thank you. This is Fuse FM, Manchester's student radio.